Okay, Jesse, the last time I saw you, you had just gone and purchased the same sandwich from the same restaurant that we went to the day before. This is exactly what I want to talk about. Have you, did you purchase it a third time? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't because I left. But this was like, some people might know that we were just in LA together. We saw each other for a very special event. And that event was you accidentally leading me to one of the best sandwiches I've ever had. It was so good. The sandwich was so good that I want to make fun of you for going back to the restaurant the day after we ate there and getting the same sandwich. But, but I, <laughs> I did exactly the same thing. So I ate, I think, three meals in L.A. Two of them were at a place called Dune Downtown, uh, Get the Beet Sandwich. It was really good. It's like a pickled beet sandwich. And that, I'm sure that doesn't even sound good, but like it was just it had every It had a hard-boiled egg. It had all these like sly greens. This experience just changed me for the better because I now know this sandwich exists and I can fly to L.A. once a week to uh, to get it. So that was really special. And, you know, as much as I criticize you, once every two to three years, you do something really good, like find that place. So thank you, Katie. You're welcome for that. Uh, anything else we should discuss about our trip to L.A. or just the sandwich? No, that was it. That was all that happened. We came out. I came. I ate. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, ate again. Uh, yeah, let's uh, well, let's get into the actual event. But first, Katie, what is the name of this increasingly sandwich obsessed podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And yes, we were both there for the Free Presses event. Has the sexual revolution failed? You were first to announce you were going to go, and then I got FOMO'd into it because mm-hmm. anytime, if an event is important enough for you to leave your house, which is an uphill. Well, I mean, you'll leave your house. You won't really leave your island or peninsula unless you really want to, right? I mean, I do have a van. I do drive the van off of the island pretty frequently. I don't generally go to cities if I can avoid them. And I don't generally go to events if I can avoid them either. But yes, uh, you, as they say, would go to the opening of an envelope. So you, <laughs> when you heard that I was going, you had to be there too. That's a slight oversimplification, but I heard some other people were going. It seemed like it would be fun. <laughs> I'd always wanted to see downtown LA, especially late at night, which is just a thriving <laughs> scene and not scary at all. Like, There's a lot of people out there. A lot of people out there. They live there on the street. Uh, no, but so yeah, we attended the event and then we went to a, a party afterward. And what what did you think of the event itself? So the event, so this was a debate uh, organized by, yes, Barry Weiss's company, the Free Press. And it was a debate between... And fire. Don't forget and fire. And fire. And fire. And it was the debate was on the question, did the sexual revolution fail women? And so arguing for the proposition that the sexual revolution did fail women, women was Louise Perry, British author. She's the only one whose beat is really this issue. She recently wrote a book about this, about yeah. sexual revolution and how and how liberalizing... Some social norms has failed women in various ways. And then also on her side was Anna Kachian from Red Scare. Our listeners, if you're listening to this, you have failed us so badly by not being half as obsessed with us as it was just, it's insane. Like every time, like just her fangirls. And I think they're mostly girls or women. Um, I, I disagree. And I talked to Susie Weiss about this. I said that you think that Red Scare listeners are mostly female. Yeah. Susie agreed with me. Male, all male. I Gay boys, some gay boys. All right, Red Scare listeners, write what in. Is, Are you male okay. or female? Yeah. I, I, if you go to the, well, it could just be, I've been to their subreddit a couple times. It seems very female coded, but maybe. You cannot tell someone's, someone's sex or gender from subreddit. But if anything, a subreddit is going to be more, uh, okay, whatever. Anyway, they have, they have very enthusiastic fans is the point. Okay. And arguing that the sexual re- revolution has not failed it was Sarah Hader from uh, the Special Place in Hell podcast. She's also done some activism in the ex-Muslim community and also Grimes. Who is never a Muslim, <laughs> as far as we know. Who is never a Muslim. And it was, I would say, the event was really well produced. This was their first live event. Barry was moderating. Tim Dillon opened. Tim was great. Barry was great. The debate itself was fun. I would not call it a serious debate. No. And I think part of that is because they didn't choose four people who are who are really on this on this beat, who really have strong feelings about this. They had one, and that was Louise Perry. And so I would say overall, like, Louise was well-prepared. Sarah was well-prepared. They came ready to debate. They came with arguments. Anna was hilarious and very mean. She basically roasted everybody. Well, her her like initial opening thing was just a mini roast. And she said that yeah. um, Barry Weiss is the reason anti-Semitism still exists in America. <laughs> yeah, she was very funny. And Grimes was Grimes was like a teenager who got to class the day of the big presentation <laughs> and re- remembered that she yeah. hadn't prepared for the presentation. She was incredibly bad. Very, very bad. 
What did but you she think? was endearing. She was endearing, but she was, but endearing, she was like, bad. She was like sitting the way that she sat. She was sitting with her legs up, her knees against the table. She really looked like a teenager. It turns out she's thirty five and has however many children with Elon Musk. But she got up and said, "Like I'm a terrible public speaker. I have a learning disability. I can't read off of this. I can't like read my own words here." Basically, it was like, "I'm going to be horrible about this." And indeed, she was terrible at it. Which is why it's so funny that we'll talk about this, I think, in a bit. But the LA Times wrote this uh, this terrible review. And the the reviewer said that Grimes won the debate because Grimes was the only one who, like, spoke from the heart. Yeah, that's not what you want in a debate. The debate isn't about, like, who's the most endearing, unprepared character. A debate should be about who has the most forceful, convincing arguments. I feel like after she agreed to this, Grimes looked in the mirror, realized she is Grimes. She'll always be Grimes. And she leaned into her griminess. <laughs> she wasn't like, I'm going to turn myself into Louise Perry. Right. I, like, so I agree. She was not prepared. But I didn't, like... Were you expecting her to be no. a polished public speaker? I've still found it her she was interesting as a performer in this like weird way, actually. I thought I found it like a little bit hard to watch her because I was embarrassed for her. I was not surprised at all. Like if I had been organizing this debate, I would have put Ayla in Grimes's place because Ayla, I think, would make more interesting arguments. She'd be more prepared. She was also there. Uh, so she could, so they could have just swapped them in pretty, pretty easily. And I think she would have like brought in just as many people as Grime did. Cause I don't think like, yeah, there was like more Anna Kachian fans there than Grimes fans. Grime, Grime, like a Grimes fan would show up and be like, why isn't she DJing? What is this shit? Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was an odd choice. It was still a really, really fun event. Uh, someone else pointed out that it was extremely female. And it's true. Like they kept saying like, that was a great point. You know, it was like the opposite of like the Douglas Murray, Malcolm Gladwell interview while they were while they were like stomping on each other's faces and kicking each other. Like, I'm honestly surprised that they didn't all just start telling each other how pretty they were. Like, it was a very, very female female debate. There was a lack of ugly people representation on stage, I felt. Yes, they were all very attractive. But yeah, I would not. So I would not call it a serious debate, but it was but it was still really fun. What did you think? Yeah, it was fun. It was like just as much about the free press flexing a little bit. I mean, they mm-hmm. said they sold out this, I think, 1600 seat theater. The number of people there I know from real life and from the internet, like, yeah, it just felt I'm not trying to be a dick, but it felt like everybody was like, it was just insane, including like people at like, People I know who I don't think are that online, but they ended up, there's just like a really good group of people, people I didn't expect. So I was there more for like the scene. I found the yeah. debate entertaining. I thought Tim Dillon was very good. And I'm not even like a Tim Dillon fan per se. I thought he yeah. did an amazing job opening. Tim um, is really good live. And a lot of what he did, he was, he was phoning it in. A lot of what he, what he did live, like that's repeats from his standup or his podcast. And gotcha. like, he's, he's that good even when he's phoning it in. Yeah. Uh, but no, I thought it was like very successful as, as the free press sort of announcing itself. And as someone who like agrees a lot with their mission, even when I don't always agree with what they write. Um, I was I was just impressed by the whole thing. I was very grateful I got to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Barry got a ton of people to fly out for it. It was great to see friends. And so to me, that was, you know, the real selling point, even more so than the event itself, was that it was just a really good place to, like, meet yeah. people I hadn't met in real life that I've, I've sort of known on the internet and also just see people who, you know, because we do have this, like, kind of good extended network of, of people who are in our uh, podcasters, basically. And uh, and you only see him. I only see him once or twice a year. So it was really nice to see everybody. Can I tell a quick story from the after party that will require a little bit of bleeping, but I think it's still worth telling. Can you just do the beat manually so I don't have to do it when I'm editing? All right. Let's see if I can do that. <laughs> All right. So um, this was a exchange I, that occurred at the after party that I found out about after. One was someone I know. Let's call him Tom. The other was a fairly famous person. Let's call her Sheila. Tom and Sheila. Those are two normal names, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tom knows who Sheila is. He wants to like talk to her. He's a little bit nervous. So I sort of like, I'm like, let's just fuck it. Let's just do it. It doesn't matter. We like get into their conversation circle. Then Tom starts talking to Sheila. They talk for a half hour. Tom later reports to me that a half hour into their conversation, Sheila looks at Tom, who's a straight man, and says, are you gay? And he says, No. Sheila says, you are gay, you just don't know yet, and walks away. Conversation <laughs> over. Uh, my favorite part from the after party was when you asked me to introduce you to Buck Angel, which I had done an hour before, 
at the venue because I was sitting beside him in the theater. You were on this other side of me. I introduced I introduced you and you somehow did not put it together. But he didn't put it together either. I don't think he put it together either, yes. But the fact that both of you, Buck Jesse, like like Buck like how many other people are named Buck? I'm sitting with a giant Jewish man. Obviously it's you. The two of you. Come on. I'm sorry about that, Buck. I hope next time I'll recognize you and we can we can talk more. My favorite, my second favorite part of the after party was seeing the effect that the sort of moth to a candle effect that Anna Kachian and her podcast co-host Dasha have with men, where it was just a series of men trying to edge their way into their orbit and then being edged out by other men. Very fun to watch. You might have been part of it. I was. I mean, yeah, whatever. <laughs> No comment. Um, yeah, that was really fun. I, I was really in bad shape the next day because I just, weirdly for me, given how much I love to eat, I didn't eat enough, which is not usually a problem I have. I was in great shape because I didn't drink. And um, I tweeted this, but, you know, I think people have this idea that, like, you really need alcohol to, like, have a good time at a party. Because you do. Because you and do. That's, and, like, I'm here to say it's 100% true. You want, you absolutely <laughs> do. Alcohol makes a party a million times better. Do not go to parties sober. It's way less fun. I didn't have a hangover, though. This is our message to anyone out there who is sober and is trying to not drink anymore. Don't go to parties. Just don't yeah. go to parties? Like you won't have a yeah. Just don't, just live an isolated life without any social support. You go to work. Go to ho- go do hobbies. Go for hikes. Don't go to parties. <laughs> it's a waste of your time. Yeah. So like, thank you to the free press for hooking us up. I guess um, they're going to release audio of the debate so people can judge for themselves. Will that include the Tim Dillon thing? I hope it does. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, that should uh, that should be good. Should we talk about this article the LA Times ran the next day? Yeah, quite the review. This, this was their uh, TV critic Lorraine Ali. It. I didn't even like disagree with all of it. Um, like one of the things she pointed out was like there wasn't actually that much disagreement, which made it for right. not always a much which fair point. But this was like such a snotty article. I thought it had such like a it was like very much written from the perspective of like we good people all know Barry Weiss is a total piece of shit. So um it just it just it came off as snotty and obnoxious. And my favorite one of my favorite parts came right at the top. Quote, former New York Times opinion writer and full-time agitator Barry Weiss moderated the most certainly not right-wing, how could you even suggest such a thing event, which kicked off with comedian Tim Dillon joking about transgender teens and how bored he was with the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I'm not even a big Tim Dillon fan the way you are. I'm not sure I've watched five minutes of his stand-up in the past, but I thought his opening set was hilarious. And I love this idea that Lorraine Ali's idea of her audience had these trained seals as soon as she's like, they he joked about right. trans kids and Ukraine. They're just be like, oh my god, how could you joke about these sacred subjects? And it's such a dishonest way of of phrasing what Tim does because Tim is a heel. Yes, He's, the uh, the object of his of his ridicule is always himself. When he's joking That's about what all these bits had in common, right, like how much of right. a, how much of an idiot or reactionary, uh, an he asshole is he is, right? When he's joking about transgender teens, they are not the butt of the joke. Tim is. When he's joking about the war of, uh, in Ukraine, it's him. It's always about him. And I know the man; he is a piece of shit in real life, so it's not even that far from the truth. But he, she, she completely misrepresents what his humor is about and why it's so funny. Well, I mean, she doesn't even say what the jokes are. She just points out that he made jokes about that right. subject, so therefore he's a bad right. guy. I mean, I think that the obviously the trans teens and Putin stuff, he's making gesturing at certain right. political points or satirizing the situation, but it's much more like like at one point he basically says Putin's a bad guy, but he's not asking me for any money, which is like sort of what a how a dumb person would decide where their sympathy lies. He's, ma- he's totally making fun of himself. Right. And she didn't get that. <laughs> or she did get it and she's pretending not to, which I'm not sure what's worse. She doesn't care. It was the same thing where it's like, I can't believe, like, th- these comedians can make fun of, like, a dying white opioid right. addict in Kentucky. And that's fine. But as soon as it's anything on trans stuff or God forbid you, it's just stupid. Anyway. Jesse, Jesse, who has more power, a dying white opiate, opioid addict in Kentucky or a teenager who goes to a private school in New Hampshire who goes by they, them pronouns? Really, <laughs> Jesse, come on. This was the part that annoyed me the most because this is where it's just like, frankly, making shit up. Quote, the debate was the first in a planned series organized by Weiss New Media Venture, the Free Press, and the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, FIRE, 
a group that claims to advocate for free speech on college campuses, except when the speakers don't share its political views. Katie, explain why this is not only wrong and stupid, but aggressively wrong and stupid. It's just wrong. It's just absolutely wrong. Like fire. One of the great things about fire is that unlike groups like the ACLU now, the new ACLU, fire actually does advocate for free speech, not just on college campuses. She's wrong about that. But free speech. They've expanded recently. They've expanded. Uh, but free speech in lots of different industries. And they do it on the basis of free. On, of, like, they're defending the First Amendment. It's got nothing to yeah. do with with the political position. And this has made them unpopular with some conservatives. They have spoken against people like Chris Rufo and Ron DeSantis. And they have defended things like Drag Queen Story Hour in public libraries. She, this writer, has no idea what she's talking about. She doesn't know what fire is. Like no. so, so except when the speakers don't share its political views, is her. I think she's making it up because she thinks Barry Weiss did that too with that whole anti-Semitism um, at Columbia thing, where right. she was accused of like going after a anti-Zionist professor. But I really think Lorena Lee is just making this up because she's really. It's just if you're familiar with Fire's work, it's hard to express how wrong that is and how it's like the exact opposite of what they do. If you just like you, I you can go on their website. They highlight the cases they take on. They're across the political spectrum. So I emailed Lorraine Ali. I pointed that out. I also said like, you know, side note, but they're not just on college campuses. They've expanded. As you said, um, you're quite confident she will correct this immediately. Now, it's now been a day and she has it, but I'm sure any any second now she'll correct it and apologize. And this also tells us that the editors have no idea. Whoever read her piece and hit publish on no her familiarity. piece. No familiarity. No familiarity. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, they about. were so upset that Tim Tim Dillon made a joke about trans kids. They were probably sort of on the verge of fainting. And Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I suspect that she had decided before the event got started where she stood on the on this event in the first place. And her review reflects that. Yeah. I mean, she. yeah, it's just whatever. We don't need to give any more time to her. Uh, anything else on the event? God, that sandwich was good. It was so good. So hold on. Can I just read one thing? Is it the ingredient list? Yeah. Okay, that's it for the event. I guess our, our structure is kind of screwed up today. We usually tease what we're doing. What else do we have on the docket today? Uh, we are going to be talking about a piece that just came out today. We're recording this on Friday in The New Yorker about Hassan Minaj's comedy, question mark. And we're also, the bulk of the show is going to be about gays against groomers. Gays against groomers. Uh, can I do one quick update first? Sure. Well, two quick things. I mentioned uh, one or two episodes ago this history podcast I love called The Rest is History. I mentioned how I heard about it from a listener at the London event. That listener's name is Russell Hogg. He has a podcast called Subject to Change. I should have given that a shout out. He's actually had one of the co-hosts of uh, The Rest is History on a couple times. Sorry about that, Russell, but Russell Hogg, Subject to Change. Check that out. The other thing, and and thanks to the um, some one of our subredditors pointed this out, um, one of the two co-hosts of this podcast is Dominic Sandbrook. He wrote a book called Mad as Hell, The Crisis of the 1970s and the Rise of the Populist Right. came out 2012. A uh, friend of the podcast, Michael Moynihan, who is a very good plagiarism hunter, mm-hmm. uh, he, he wrote a review for the Wall Street Journal at the time pointing out that Dominic Sandbrook appears to have plagiarized some stuff. Now, this is generally the quote-unquote lighter sort of misdemeanor form of plagiarism where Sandbrook would repeatedly – take other people's language, tweak it slightly, pass it off as his own description of events, and then also cite it. So I think most of the things uh, Moynihan is accusing of are that form of plagiarism, which I think still is... Wait, and then also cite it? Yeah. So like take the language almost exactly, not put it in quotes. Yeah. So it makes it sound like right. Sandbrook came up with the phrasing and then cite okay. it, having not quoted it, which is, it's not good. Um, but he cites it. He does cite it, yeah. Okay. But you still can't do that. You can't take someone else's language and pass it off as your own. No, you can't. But I don't know. I guess, yeah, this would be misdemeanor plagiarism, I think. This is, I mean, he's crediting. Yeah. He doesn't. I asked Moynihan. Moynihan had like an old Google Doc with like other examples. I asked for his permission to share it. I haven't heard back yet. If I get it, I will. But there's like a lot of examples of this. So I still love the podcast. I still think it's great. But I don't know. I just felt bad that uh, I didn't know that. I felt like I should mention it. Well, if he's a plagiarist, he should have a bright future running the newsletter Garbage Day. (laughs) Deep cut. Deep cut. Okay. So this New Yorker article was published by Claire Malone. It's called Hassan Minaj's Emotional Truths. And it's about this uh, very famous Indian-American comic, right? Yeah, Hassan Minaj. So he first became known as a correspondent for The Daily Show under Jon Stewart. 
And then after that, he had a weekly Netflix show called Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. It ran from 2018 until 2020, won a Peabody Award. Uh, so that's one of the most prestigious awards, not in comedy, but in, in journalism. He also has a couple stand-up specials on Netflix. He's done some acting. He was in, I think, the last season of um, The Morning Show. And a lot of his comedy is about being an Indian American in a post-9-11 world. So he tells these pretty harrowing stories about discrimination and harassment. But Claire Malone from The New Yorker, in this piece, she reports that it turns out that his most fucked up, dramatic stories about being an Indian American in a post-9-11 world are total bullshit, fabrications, or what he calls emotional truths. And these were like very very specific. This wasn't like the kind of thing where you're like tweaking a little bit details to sex up a story, which I think a lot of performers do constantly. These were in effect fabrications presented not for laughs, but just like to, to sort of show off the shit he'd been through. Right. So the two biggest fabrications from this piece are that he says that in 2002, his mosque in, in California where he grew up was infiltrated by an FBI informant who he calls Brother Eric, who tried to coerce Minaj and his friends into talking about jihad. This was when they were in middle school. I'll read you a bit from Claire Malone's piece. Minaj decided to mess with Brother Eric, telling him that he wanted to get his pilot's license. Soon, the police were on the scene, slamming Minaj against the hood of a car. Years later, while watching the news with his father, Minaj saw a story about Craig Monteith, who assumed the cover of a personal trainer when he became an FBI informant in Muslim communities in Southern California. Well, 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 Papa, look who it is, Minaj recalls telling his father, it's our good friend, Brother Eric. So Minaj told this story in his 2022 Netflix special. The special is called The King's Gesture. But as Malone discovered, none of this is true. It's pure fabrication. So there is a Craig Monteith who was an FBI informant. But Malone actually talked to him. And during this period where he was supposedly infiltrating the mosque that Hassan Minaj went to, he was in prison. He didn't start working with the FBI as an informant until years later. And he didn't work anywhere near Hassan's mosque. But because that sort of thing did happen in other places, though not to him, Minaj says this is emotionally true, if not literally true. That's what he means by these emotional truths. So that was the first one. And he's very clear. He's very He admits to Claire Malone, that this stuff didn't happen. So he's not even denying that at this point. No, he's not denying it now. But he's repeated these claims not just in his stand-up specials, but in, like, interviews and shit. So this is not just something that he's saying for comedic effect on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, There's a bunch more examples. We'll link to the article in the show notes. It's really worth a read. But the most egregious fabrication was that he said that someone sent him a letter in the mail that contained white powder and that this white powder got on his daughter. I love that when I read it because, like, it's like... When I'm opening my mail, I always open it in the direction of my kid and just shake it out toward yeah. them to make just in case there's anything in it. Anyway. It's like when you have your kid eat your food so you know that if, if anybody gets food poisoning, it's going to be them. I mean, if I do have kids, I'm, I'm doing oh, that. Because sure. like just they're anyway, – yeah. of course. Yeah, anyway. And the story is supposed to convey that he's like being attacked by racist and Islamophobes. And so during The King's Jester, this Netflix special, he tells this story with the death threats that he's received on Twitter on the screen behind him. And here's what Malone reports. Minaj received death threats online. And according to his security guard, a former NYPD officer, a letter was sent to Netflix threatening Minaj, but it didn't contain any powder. Minaj also acknowledged to me that the threatening tweets displayed on the large screen during the King's gesture were not authentic, but rather heightened for comedic effect. What? It's like, <laughs> right, for comedic effect. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. why is it? I have no doubt this guy experienced some racism, but why does he have to lie so Anybody much? in the fucking public eye. No, but I mean, even before he was, right. I'm, I'm, like, I'm right. sure it would not have been fun post 9-11 growing up Indian American, but like. But then why does he have to lie so much if he has, like, legitimate stories of it? Because it's, it makes the story better if he's at the center of the action and if these things happen to him. It's much less compelling to talk about somebody else who got roughed up by police. It's, you know, he's centering yeah. himself in this action. He also lied about a girl rejecting him in high school because her parents didn't want her. He said his parent, her parents didn't want her to date a brown guy. He used a photo of her up on stage, but the photo was kind of blurred out. So she's pissed about this because it was apparently pretty easy to figure out who she was. Claire Malone, I guess, did. Uh, And then there's this very interesting section in the piece about him kicking fact checkers out of the writer's room during the production of his show. 
And they seem to think it was because they were women, but it seems much more likely to me it was because they were fact checkers. They were people of accuracy. (laughs) So, So this, of course, and Malone gets into this, it gets into the whole question of like, when is it okay for comics to lie and when is is it not? And Jesse, what do you think about this? Oh, I mean, I, I think Claire either says or quotes someone saying a version of this, which is, if you're exaggerating a story of a night out with your drunken friends for laughs, right. no one's going to be like, that comedian should be punished for that. That's what comedians do. That's what right. stand-up is. If you're trying to make a political point about expression, uh, oppression you experience, that's not for laughs, and you're trying, you're building a brand off of fabricated stories. It seems to me that's like pretty different for obvious reasons. Uh, totally, I think you're exactly right, and like I'm more. Th- but I, but I would say that because I'm, I'm sensitive to this because the Red Scare girls kept calling me Jew boy, <laughs> and they carved a Jewish star into my back when I was asleep. It really happened. That actually is believable. Uh, yeah, I'm like I'm more than fine when comics lie as part of their act. Like comedy is storytelling, and like I don't leave a Tim Dillon show thinking that he literally kicked a trans five year old in the head, <laughs> although he might have. But to me, there's just something very different about what Minaj is doing because I would leave a a Hassan Minaj show thinking that yes, he was literally slammed on the hood of a police car, yeah. and that's going to influence my thinking about the world. And so, to me, what he did seems much more in line with what, say, Mike Daisy did when when he fabricated a story about Apple plants in China on This American Life several years ago than what, say, Tim Dillon does or what David Sedaris does. Like, yes, they both fabricate and exaggerate stories about their lives, but they don't claim to have been in the Twin Towers on 9-11 on stage and then repeated in interviews and then never tell anyone, like, actually, I meant I was in the Twin Towers diner in Jersey City. Like, Mm -hmm. they just, to me, it's just, it's something very fundamentally different. I mean, Tim does claim to have flown the plane, but he obviously can't fit in the cockpit, so we all know that's a lie. (laughs) And Minaj, like, he doesn't just fabricate these stories on stage. He wanted people to think that the stories were real and that they literally happened to him and that he was a victim and he was rewarded for this. And like we were saying before, when Tim, a, a, like a, a much more talented, I think, comic than Minaj tells a story on stage, he's not making himself look like the victim of the story. He's making himself look like the asshole or the heel. And so to me, there's just a like real fundamental difference here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that people would even find that controversial. It just uh, Claire no. Malone did good reporting, and uh, she's got him dead to rights. And it's not its not good. It's just a gross thing to make this stuff up about. It really is. And he didn't just lie about like his ex-girlfriend or this imaginary cop who slammed him against the hood of the car. He also lied about public figures. Like he tells this story about being at a gala for Time magazine, and he says that there was an empty chair for – a an activist who'd been imprisoned by the Saudi government. And he says that Jared Kushner went in like ostentatiously sat in this empty chair. Didn't fucking happen. There was no empty chair. What a bastard. It, what right, a bastard. right. So yeah. that's not just like telling a funny story on Twitter. That's actual defamation. <laughs> like, Yeah. The most fucked up thing Minaj has done by far is make me side with Jared Kushner. I feel disgusting about that. I know. It's so much worse than lying. Okay, so on Twitter, Jay Caspian Kang, he called what Minaj does oppression porn. He, he said, another example of how oppression stories, in this case fabricated oppression porn, gets leveraged by upwardly mobile immigrants to mostly advance their careers. That's interesting. And, 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 and you know who the target is? It's guilty white liberals who want to hear about how bad the country is. Right, right. Trace had a good take as well. He said this on Twitter. This sort of lie isn't harmless trivia. It distorts the landscape of expectations, conditioning people to believe in a false world and expect the worst from others. It's corrosive. I think he's totally right about this. You know, this idea that like there's an... Good boy, Trace. This idea that there's sort of a a greater truth or an emotional truth. You hear this about things like, uh, you know, who 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 threw the first brick at Stonewall or like the fact that Matthew Shepard... Nicki Minaj. I said Nicki Minaj. That's racist. (laughs) She did, Uh, yeah. Or the, you know, the fact that Matthew Shepard might indeed not have been killed by homophobes, but over drug money. This idea that social change comes from this, therefore it's somehow justified to lie. No, it's propaganda. Yeah. Uh, Anything else on this New Yorker article? No, I'm really curious to see how this is going to impact his career. I think he'll be okay. (laughs) You know, our friends Andy Mills and Rukmani Kalamachi, they had to return a Peabody Award when it turned out that the podcast that they made, Caliphate, that one of their sources may have been lying. This was written into, like, the narrative of the podcast. This shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. 
we should maybe do a whole show on that at some point. Uh, they had to give their Peabody back. I wonder if, <laughs> if they didn't lie about anything. They gave back their fucking Peabody. I wonder if Hassan Minaj will be forced to as well. Should we do housekeeping? Yes, but first we have an ad. Jesse, as you know, we make millions of dollars every year selling our famous tote bags, t-shirts, hats, thongs, onesies, and our hand-stitched, blocked and reported death shrouds. We sure do. I actually quit my day job as the rat at Chuck E. Cheese to sell merch full-time. That's how much money our retail business is raking in. Your family must be so proud that you finally got a job that doesn't require a hairnet or a fursuit. If you also want to quit your day job and sell thongs and death shrouds for a living, you have got to check out Shopify. Shopify already took the cash register online, and they're doing the same thing at actual retail stores, the kind with doors and walls and customers in them. That's right. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash barpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash barpod to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash barpod. Let's do housekeeping, Katie. We are Blocked Reported. We are a podcast. A podcast is a thing you listen to. You can find out more about us at blockedreported.org, where most importantly, you can become a premium subscriber for just $5 a month and up, you get three extra episodes a month. Our last premium episode was about... Um, uh, Britain's strictest headmistress. Britain's hate Miss Snuffy? Yeah, Miss Snuffy. This is about Miss Snuffy. Miss Snuffy. This was a really good one. You guys should check it out. You can also find our merch at barpodmerch.com. We've got hats. We've got hoodies. We should have sandwiches. We don't. Ooh, I'm also, yeah. I, Katie, I sent you some ideas for new t-shirts. You haven't responded yet, mm-hmm. which I'm I'm guessing you were so blown away by how good they were. You just didn't want to respond. I was so blown away by the sandwich. I was still thinking about it. <laughs> it's all I think about. It's getting like sexual almost. It's not good. <laughs> I got to talk to my therapist about the sandwich. Uh, what else? Oh, Apple Podcasts. We're at 4.7. Please get us to 4.8. That would be amazing. By that, he means please, please leave a kind review for us five leave a five that'll leave get us five up to star 4. review 8. five star review thank you um our reddit is blockchainreported.reddit.com and that's it right that's everything did you say the primo i don't think you did yes yes you did? you're so high on sand on beats that yeah. you can't remember anything blockchainreported.org okay katie you want to talk to me about gag yes jesse gag that is gays against groomers a group that has somehow gained a bit of power and prominence in the current political landscape. So Gays Against Groomers gag has been riddled with controversy and conflict in its short time on Earth. But before we get to all the drama, here's some background. Gag was created by a Milwaukee woman named Jamie Michelle in June of 2022. It started as Twitter and Instagram accounts, but it has since evolved into something much bigger including recently they launched an investigative news outlet (laughs) competing with the New York Times. At least that's what it's trying to be. Uh, According to their website, GAG is a 501c4 organization of gay people who oppose the recent trend of indoctrinating, sexualizing, and medicalizing children under the guise of LGBTQI+. And according to trans activists, liberal media, and groups like GLAAD, the Anti-Defamation League, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, GAG is actually an anti-trans hate group that fuels stochastic terrorism and has ties to the alt-right. Jesse, based on what you've seen from this group and those groups, would you guess that that's an accurate portrayal of them? I would guess that any coverage of a group like Gays Against Groomers from... Yeah, I guess it's probably exaggerated, but I also think what gays against. But one little, I'm looking forward to learning more about gays against groomers. I'm very grossed out by its whole thing. But yes, I would imagine that there's some exaggeration about their actual 
influence. And I know terms like stochastic terrorism seem to get thrown around a lot these days. Yeah. So before we get into the weeds here, I also want to state my bias up front. I do not like the kind of rhetoric that this group traffics in, like just the name alone, Gays Against Groomers, besides the fact that GAG is a terrible acronym. Uh, I've said this on the show before, but I want to reiterate, the term groomer is very catchy. It rhymes with boomer. It's also really gross, misleading, and it leads to a lot of confusion. And people like James Lindsay have attempted to redefine the term groomer into meeting ideological indoctrination, which is sort of ironic because he will endlessly complain when liberals do the same thing about terms like women or racism. And yet he and others have intentionally mutated this term in a way that both preys on people's fears about child abuse and evokes long history of panic about gay people, gay men in particular, being pedophiles. I think it's gross when straight people like James Lindsay do it and when gay people like Jamie Michelle do it. She's a lesbian. I just I don't even understand it. I don't even understand why you you would use this term. Although, as you will hear, Jamie Michelle has sort of merged these two causes. So she's fighting against indoctrination and literal sexual abuse. So it's a real buy one, get one situation with gag. Uh, So that's my bias. And I've come up with what I think is a better name for a group that's less of a dog whistle to QAnon. Tell me what you think about this, Jesse. Sexual minority empowerment and guardianship movement against authoritarianism or smegma. I like it. I love smegma. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, Okay, so Jamie Michelle, the founder of GAG, she has a background in graphic design. Before she started GAG, she worked for a company called Arsenal Media, which is a conservative internet marketing company. They work with conservative politicians and public figures. And it was founded by Benny Johnson, who's a former Bud Seeds staffer, who was fired after it emerged that over 40 of his articles were plagiarized. And uh, before that, Mitchell worked for various corporations, including Tinder. She does not have a background in activism or management uh, until GAG, at least professionally. So before she started GAG, she called Jamie called herself the gay who strayed online. So that's as in the gay who strayed from the democratic hegemony, I guess. She owns the basepatriot.com, which sells various like liberal tiers kind of merch. Should we do a liberal tiers shirt for our for We should sell actual actual liberal tiers. Yeah. Like in plastic bags. If you're a liberal and you're listening to this and you can cry into a plastic bag for us. Send it our way. We'll resale it. Uh, you know, it's not hard to get you crying. You just tickle you a little bit. We could get some Jesse tears really easily. <laughs> As we found out the other night, yeah. whenever it kept tickling uh-huh. me. Uh, so Jamie is definitely a minority within the gay population. Only about 15% of gay people are registered Republicans. And up until recently, she was a really big Trump supporter. She once tweeted that she wanted to see, quote, handcuffs and public hangings over the steel dossier. <laughs> uh, for those who blocked this out, I know. This is the document that BuzzFeed published about Trump's alleged and since largely discredited uh, Russian connections. So I guess that would be like Ben Smith would be up in the gallows in Times Square, maybe. That's a good sign that you're against like authoritarianism is when you're in favor of handcuffs and public hangings, yeah. the hallmarks of anti-authoritarian thinking. Yeah, and her online history is pretty revealing. So like in response to a story about 700 Muslims being trampled to death in, in Mecca, she tweeted, quote, based. Nice. Good. Just celebrating people dying. She later said that her ex did it. Uh, but if you scroll down long enough through her Flickr account, along with various college party pics and quite a few dog pics, she is, of course, a lesbian, you will find some very charming images of swastikas, Hitler, Illuminati themes, and cats. Again, she's a lesbian. Wait, so like actual like like swastikas like... In a way that suggests she likes swastikas and she likes Hitler. Jesse, it's a good question. I'm going to send you a link to her, the archive of her Flickr account. Why don't you be the judge of this? Is this an endorsement of Hitler or just a happenstance photo of Hitler? So she seems to believe in Illuminati stuff involving the Twin Towers. There appears to be just a photo of a swastika and then that like eagle symbol with the swastika in its claws. Yeah, there's a pretty... There's a photo of Hitler. Like a glamour shot of Hitler. But isn't that a photo of Osama bin Laden next to Hitler? There's also, yeah, a photo of Osama bin Laden. It's very weird. It's very weird. It's a collection of photos. I don't know. I'm not saying that she's a Nazi. She has wide-ranging interests. She does. Let's say that. Cats, Hitler, drinking. Okay. So the other thing is that she blamed this on a hack as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was the same hacker who got to Joy Reid's old blog. <laughs> yeah, they're just going around. All these people have like, anyway, yeah. I'm sure that's it. So Gag blew up really quickly. 
Within a few months of starting both the Twitter and Instagram accounts, they had almost 100,000 followers each. They now have almost 370,000 followers on Twitter, 350,000 on Instagram, and there are chapters, actual gag chapters, all over the U.S. And their growth was certainly aided by Tucker Carlson and Fox News. So Jamie first appeared on the Tucker Carlson show in August 2022, less than three months after launching gag. Uh, some people claim there's no way it could have grown that much organically, but I don't think there's a conspiracy here. Like, it started out small piggybacking on accounts like libs of tiktok gained a bit of a following tucker saw it, it was featured on fox news it started getting covered by mainstream and liberal press all negative and it's just gotten bigger and bigger but how like how influential is it actually in the real world so that's really hard to quantify they claim to be very influential and they do have some tangible connections to power. So like a Republican lawmaker in Arizona met with gag before drafting legislation that would have made it a felony to take t kids to sexually explicit drag shows and would require drag queens, businesses that host drag and parents who did take kids to drag shows to register as sex offenders and potentially face prison time. Sorry, you have to uh, register as a sex offender for being a drag queen under this law? If if there's a, kids at, a kid at the drag show. It's such a weird... Or if you're a parent who takes your kid to the drag show. This is such a weird obsession, and it's gone so off the rails in some corners of conservative America. So the... So the bill actually did make it through the Arizona legislature with several amendments, uh, but it was Jesus. vetoed by Governor Katie Hobbs. So they can pat themselves on the back for almost getting drag moms put on the sex offender registry. Another thing, uh, the North Carolina chapter got Charlotte Pride to rescind an award to a guy named Chad Turner, who was the CEO of an LGBT Chamber of Commerce thing after they found out that he was a registered sex offender. So they got a couple things done. GAG also takes credit for, or alternately are blamed for, the 19 states that have passed laws restricting youth transition. Or no, that was the New York Times' as well. <laughs> And yours. And mine. Uh, a number of people who are affiliated with GAG have testified in support of those bills. My guess is that this legislation would be happening even if GAG didn't exist, but that's the kind of public advocacy they do. They also attend protests, school board meetings, that sort of thing. Just what, just this whole thing of finding like the person who's responsible for this. Um, these clinics, I don't want to get into a whole sidetrack. These clinics started giving these treatments, including surgery, to kids who are younger and younger and younger. How is that not going to be a thing? It was always going to be a right. thing when it came out among both conservatives and folks who are skeptical of these treatments. I'm sure groups like GAG can accelerate it, but it's just it's silly to imagine there's any universe in which conservatives would not have responded and some liberals responded negatively to that. Jesse, it's not the fault of the people who are giving mastectomies to 13-year-olds. It's the people who are objecting to the people giving the, the mastectomies to 13-year-olds. Exactly. So what kind of, I try to stay away from GAG, what kind of like stuff do they actually post? It's a lot like libs of TikTok. And like libs of TikTok, there's a mix of what I see as legitimate concerns and fear mongering. They often focus on schools. So they call out various school districts and teachers that they think are grooming children. And sometimes I think their grievances are justified. Like when it comes to schools, I wouldn't call this grooming, but when it comes to schools like aiding and socially transitioning kids and then hiding it from the parents, they're against that. I'm against that. But a lot of their rhetoric preys on people's fears. And they really lean into anti-gay tropes, which is very odd for a group that is made up of largely gay people. Like, here's a tweet from last month. A grooming event is being held at Salt Shed Chicago, which generally hosts adult parties and concerts for kids called the Queer Fam Pride Jam. This event includes a dance party, family yoga, and a drag extravaganza. Why do adults want to have a dance party and do yoga with children? Like, dancing is only okay at father-daughter dances in church basements, not okay at pride events. It's very weird, because they think, so in their view, these evil people are trying to groom kids, but they're just doing it, like, right out of the open and advertising it. Mm -hmm. I want to dance with your yeah. kids. Okay. Anyway, that makes a lot of sense. The tweet continues. Slomo is a queer event planning organization whose founder, according to their website, says the company began when they, quote, longed for a space with a sensual vibe for queer women and friends to connect. It seems they wanted to bring a sensual vibe to children as well. We strongly oppose this event and believe that the Salt Shed and its corporate sponsors should reconsider. This is just fear-mongering. It's a family event, which means it's a place for our gay parents to take their kids to do yoga and skateboard and make bad art and dance. Now, like, you can totally argue that drag is always inappropriate for kids. I'm sure there are some people in our audience who believe this. 
I don't really want to kick that wasp nest again. We've done it enough. But the fact that this organization also holds events for adults is proof of nothing, absolutely nothing. And yet the replies to this tweet, like, let me read you a few of these of the replies. Actually, Jesse, do you want to read them? These are just becoming open meetups for pedophiles being disguised as pride. That's from a uh, based female. Then we have, let's not beat around the bush. This is a map event. Map is um, sort of like pro-pedophile, right? Minor attracted person event. These people want to fuck little kids. That's right, Jesse. They want to fuck little kids and they're going to do it out in public. This is how like someone gets hurt. You just repeat this shit so much. There'll be some crazy person who's going to show. It's just really bad. You're totally right. And in fact, there have been bomb threats at Pride because people think that they're saving the children. Okay, so here's another tweet from Gag. Our community that was once about just having the same rights as all Americans has been hijacked by pedophiles and perverts who use us as a shield to prey on children. We're standing in their way now, and we aren't going to take it anymore. It's up to us to end this nightmare, and we will. A. It's so self-aggrandizing. Totally. It's just. Totally. A. Our community doesn't exist. But if it's been hijacked by anyone, it's been hijacked by they fabs and straight girls who call themselves queer because they once had a sex dream about Miley Cyrus, not pedophiles. This is fear mongering. And in f- the fact that the next tweet in this thread is a request for donations makes it hard to see this as anything but trying to drum up a panic and then cash in on it. Yeah. So I think what's going on here is that Jamie is conflating different things, actual sexual abuse and issues like pediatric transition and the LGBT movement in schools, queer theory in schools. Now, she's not the only person to do this. Lots of critics on this issue do it. And the argument is that all of this, like everything that's going on today, comes from queer theory. And because the originators of queer theory are pedophiles, so like Michel Foucault in particular, as well as John Money, who did have some uh, very 1970s ideas about kids and sex. So basically, because these guys were pervs, everything that comes from this movement decades later is is pedophilic in nature. What do you think about this attitude, Jesse? Yeah, this is obviously, it's just stupid to imagine that there were there have been periods when like corners of the queer movement have been had some pedophiles in it and people have expressed disgusting views but like that's not what it is in 2023 and this constant sort of I, yeah i just think this is very silly and fearmongering to be frank yeah it's like saying that because Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist and the planned parenthood of 2023 is racist or white supremacist which in fact some people do argue including parent planned parenthood <laughs> but i don't think the logic stands So Jamie has been explicit about making this connection. So here's a recent headline from the gag blog. In the wake of Sound of Freedom, the parallels between LGBTQ plus activism and the pedophile doctrine. So the Sound of Freedom, that's a movie that came out. I haven't seen it, but it's a movie about um, about somebody who like rescues from some kids in I think Central America. Jesse, will you read this passage from that? I put it in our notes there. The proliferation of pedophilic propaganda has been successful because the war on children is carried out in discreetness and hides behind multiple disguises. There's like some satanic sex abuse shit. This is like chat GPT who went through a satanic panic filter. This pedophilic spirit is rampant and lively, spreads like a virus, and lashes itself onto other social movements disguised as activism. The latest examples being LGBTQ plus rights, trans rights, drag queen story hour, and the gender affirming care movement. I mean, I have not seen The Sound of Freedom, but I'm pretty sure there's no drag queens reading Peppa Pig in it. (laughs) They're just like pulling at threads and trying to craft this narrative that I don't think is based in reality. So they're trying to do this like investigative reporting on what they call the pedophilic agenda. And some of what they found is semi-interesting, but it's not really investigative reporting so much as it is aggregation and opining. They do like to call people out. Like if you go to the website, you'll find a section called watch list and it's just them calling out people they don't like. So there's a post on Caitlyn Jenner, who they've been feuding with. We'll get into that in a little while. Uh, That implies that Caitlyn Jenner came out as trans to distract from the fact that she'd been involved in a fatal car accident. And like maybe that's true, but that's a pretty serious allegation to make against someone without offering any sort of evidence to back it up. And they're all- if you, I, I, I also don't think that makes sense because, like, if you were trying to bury this part of your past, the last thing you'd want to do is thrust yourself right, into spotlight. the spotlight. Right. So everyone's talking about you. Again. And she was like, she was involved in an accident that killed somebody. There was an investigation. She was found not culpable. Like, it's a tragedy, but she, this was not apparently her fault. All this is to say, I have many disagreements with Gag and what they're doing. That said, there's also a lot of fear mongering 
about gag within the media and by various advocacy groups and even some corporations. So they've been cut off of various platforms, including PayPal, Venmo, Google, and Twitter before Elon took over and reinstated them. So this to me is just naked censorship on the part of these companies. I don't like gag. They should still be able to use Gmail and PayPal. And the media coverage about them has been about what you would expect. So here's a headline from the West Hollywood Times. This was published in April. Gays Against Groomers Strike West Hollywood with Vandalism and Anti-Trans Messaging. There's a, a photo of this vandalism in the article. Jesse, please describe this. It looks like on like a telephone pole uh, or some kind of pole, just a, a sticker that says, no child is born in the wrong body, Gays Against Groomers. That's the vandalism? They put up a flyer, a sticker? Yeah. So the, this article also claims that there's some graffiti on the lamppost that was connected to gag, but it's totally illegible. Like, can you re- can't read any of you it? You can't read yeah. any of it. I can read the word you. You. That's it. Yeah. I think there might be an O'Hare in there. I also don't even think like that's how, like if people who put up those flyers, you don't usually put up a flyer and then scrawl some stuff in a marker. I think those are separate. Why would you do that? It doesn't you, make sense. You've got the sticker right there. It's just totally unclear that the two are connected or that Gag <laughs> also wrote this graffiti that, again, nobody can read. It's not legible. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. Like the advocate reported that Gag is, quote, not a grassroots initiative, but a right-wing project seeking to gain political and financial advantage by using anti-trans rhetoric. Why not both? Like, why can't they be both? I asked Jamie about it. She said, we have zero big donors and hardly anything in the bank. Everything we have is from small donations from our supporters. And Media Matters has gone after Gag as well. And so one of the allegations is that Jamie is into Pizzagate and QAnon conspiracies, So I asked Jamie if she's into QAnon or Pizzagate, and she said, I was on the Q train for like three days years and years ago, quickly realized it was complete bullshit. I am not a Pizzagate follower, but I do believe there is a a pedophilia issue among the global elites. So she doesn't hide this at all, and it has at times gotten in the way of Gag's mission. Uh, How so? Okay, so for example, in February of this year, Gag announced a new chapter in South Carolina. That chapter was supposed to be led by a trans woman named Nikki Starkiller. Nikki Starkiller. Yeah, government name. Nikki Starkiller. Yeah. Okay. So two weeks later, they announced on Twitter that Nikki had been fired. That post read in part, after they were already in the organization, photos came to light that were posted on their public Instagram account, the most salacious of which being a picture of them at the infamous Podesta pool while wearing a satanic face mask. For extremely obvious reasons, someone like this is not permitted in our organization, which seeks to protect children from being sexualized. I mean, I can see where this is headed, but what exactly? So John Podesta is a longtime like Democratic uh, sort of operative uh, subject of crazy conspiracy theories. But what is it? What is his pool? What's the Podesta pool? Okay, so this is some absolutely cuckoo shit, and yes, it goes back to Pizzagate. So after the WikiLeaks email dump, so John Podesta, who at the time was Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, his emails were leaked and conspiracy theorists started reading his emails coming through them, claiming that they were encoded with references to child pornography and child abuse. And this is what led a man to drive up from North Carolina to D.C. to liberate non-existent children in the basement of a pizza joint called Comet Ping Pong. This is probably familiar to everyone. Okay. So as part of the world that these people have created in their imaginations, John Podesta, the child molester slash trafficker slash Clinton campaigner, owns a painting that depicts Anderson Cooper as a child being abused in a pool. Jesse, here's the painting. Please describe. It's very, okay, this is disturbing. It's just like a skinny, emaciated kid at the bottom of a empty pool with like tied up it's very disturbing it's weird mm-hmm. okay so that's supposed to be anderson cooper they think it is so i do not know okay. how it became canon that john podesta owns this painting he is an art collector but i could find no reference to him owning this particular painting anywhere so i reached out to the artist her name is Biljana Dvorak, it's a serbian name she's from belgrade and she told me that the painting has been in a museum in belgrade since 2004 Shortly after it was finished, John Podesta does not own this painting, and that uh, he stole it from the museum and then returned it for his sick, perverted right. purposes because it's still there it before anyone can notice. Right. Yeah, okay. So for whatever reason, the Pizzagate people think that he, or alternately, sometimes it's his brother Tony, mm-hmm. that one of them owns the painting, and that the subject is a young Anderson Cooper being abused. And what's more, 
They think that the pool in this painting is the indoor pool at the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina. Jesse, have you ever been there? I feel like you recommended I go, but it was like winter and I was lazy, so I didn't. Probably not. Maybe you didn't. People recommended I went. I saw signs for it. That's like going. Yeah. It's a big tourist attraction. It's open to the public. You can take a tour. I've done it. The house was built by the Vanderbilt family in the 19th century. Anderson Cooper is a direct descendant of that family. His mother was Gloria Vanderbilt. But it hasn't been a private residence since 1956, 11 years before Anderson Cooper was born. So it's not like his family was like vacationing at the Biltmore house when he was a kid. And yet these people think that this painting depicts Anderson Cooper being abused in this pool. And it's unclear whether or not they think this happened in real life or is just a fantasy or why this Serbian artist would have any connection to this alleged abuse. But that's where the myth of the Podesta pool comes from, at least as, I, as far as I can tell from piecing it together from various like conspiracy th- TikToks. These people should all have their internet access taken away just for the for the greater good. It's so dumb. And it's made even dumber by the fact that the pool in the painting doesn't look anything like the actual Biltmore House pool. They both have like ropes on the, the side of them, which were apparently used for probably like people who couldn't swim to be able to hang out in the pool. But the tile in the painting is white and teal. And the tile in the Biltmore House pool is all white. It's not the same pool. It's not owned by John Podesta. And yet these Pizzagate people have decided that this pool is the Podesta pool, as they call it. And someone looked at Nikki Starkiller's Instagram, saw a two-year-old selfie of her at the pool. She's from South Carolina. The pool's in North Carolina. It's a very popular tourist attraction. And decided that this was proof that she is also a child abuser or an apologist or some shit. And so they fired her. This is so goddamn crazy. They also said she was wearing a satanic face mask. Oh, yeah. She's a Satanist. That part's true. (laughs) (laughs) It had a rainbow pentagram. Why is Gaze Against Groomer hiring a satanic trans woman? I think it's great that they hired a a satanic trans woman. I don't think it's They need to update their HR procedures. (laughs) No, I'm as in favor of diversity as everyone. I just wouldn't think Gaze Against Groomers would want someone like that working for them. Well, they didn't, apparently. So last month, Nikki put out a YouTube video discussing all this. She said that what happened is that she got a call from Gag. They asked her about the photo. She said she had no idea about this conspiracy theory. She didn't know about the Podesta pool. They still fired her. And she also says that later, a chapter lead from another state showed up at her house multiple times to confront her. And she said that she sent video of this to the police. And she was so freaked out that she actually moved to another state. I asked her to send me the videos of the guy or a police report. She declined. She said her lawyer told her not to release any documents or video pending investigation. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I cannot personally verify this claim. So wait, she started working for Gag, and then she claimed she was promptly chased out of the state by the crazy people that unleashed? Well, sort of. She said she was hired by Gag, fired by Gag, and then, yes, a Gag volunteer, another chapter lead, came to her house to confront her. Apparently, I would assume about this, like, Podesta pool, whatever, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Okay. But again, like, she didn't give me the video or the police report, so I didn't verify that. Okay. Nikki is not the only volunteer who has left Gag on bad terms. So in January, a trans woman named Freya quit. She was part of Trans Against Groomers, which was an offshoot of Gag. Tag. Yes, Tag. Freya had a lot to say about Jamie. Not much of it was good. She basically thinks Jamie is legitimately transphobic and didn't want trans people in the organization in the first place. This is backed up by screenshots of some internal communications, which were posted online by prior bar pod subject Carlin Borsinko. Oh, no. (laughs) I know. Carlin has naturally been very publicly sparring with Jamie for months and has documented every minute detail of their slap fight on her Substack. And she will probably dox me if I don't mention that. I'm sorry, dox me again. So check out her Substack if you would like to read 50,000 words on her beef with Jamie and see these internal communications. Are you, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Because I was I want free press to do a debate, a debate? on the East Coast. Yes. Coast. Yes. Coast. It could be in Baltimore Coast. Carlin Bursenko versus the gag lady. I'll moderate. Oh, and it could be moderated by Starkiller or whatever. <laughs> anyway, Freya and some of the other tag members I spoke to also objected to Gag's rhetoric, things like using the term groomer, calling detransitioners mutilated or poisons. Freya also told me that when the company that was manufacturing their merch dropped them, Jamie started accusing the manufacturers of being groomers too. <laughs> yeah. Now, some of what Freya told me did not check out. Like, she told me that 
Jamie used to be in a sex cult and that she used gag money to pay a friend's mortgage. As for the alleged cult, so that was connected to something called Pomo World. So basically from like 20, 2007 for like five or six years, Jamie was part of an online community that crafted a very postmodern view of the world, including what they called Pomo sexuality, Pomo World, postmodern. Most of it's been deleted from the internet, but there are some some archives. And a lot of it sounds like the precursor to things like pansexuality or non-binary identities, sort of ironically. So it was all about fluidity and shifting labels. And at one point, Jamie wrote, the human soul is simply genderless and doesn't have a specific binary orientation. Okay, groomer. <laughs> There's also some elements of numerology and some alien shit. And it, it reads like a very stoned freshman convinced that she has figured out some kind of capital T truths about the world. I haven't seen any evidence that it was a legit cult rather than some, like, weird online community. When I asked Jamie about this, she didn't answer. Uh, as for the mortgage thing, Freya didn't have any proof that gag that they used gag funds to pay Jamie's friend's mortgage. Jamie denies it. I asked the person who was supposedly the recipient of this largesse, and she said it's not true. Um, it would have obviously been helpful to have access to Gag's financials, but I don't, didn't have it. Jamie said they just got their nonprofit status and their 990s aren't available yet. So as far as I know, that mortgage thing isn't true. Freya's basic take, though, is that Jamie, as a leader, she's a charismatic and narcissistic control freak who rips people apart for their own ends. Jamie, for her part, was like, Freya's crazy. Don't listen to her. So it's like the Spider-Man meme, both pointing at each other. You're crazy. No, you're crazy. No, you're crazy. <laughs> um, I did speak to a number of other people involved in gag, and, and Freya's analysis over her as a leader was echoed by most of them. And a bunch of other volunteers have quit, including two of the leaders. Uh, and a lot of the volunteers for both tag and gag posted their reasons for quitting on Twitter. And most of what it seems to come down to is management. So not, not the world's best boss, probably. Probably not. Uh, Tag eventually disbanded earlier this year, but not all of the trans people involved quit. Sarah Higdon, she was communications director when all this went down, and she's still doing some work with Gag. She told me if Jamie, quote, made one mistake, it was trying to do too much too fast. It allowed people to come in who were not vetted properly. I also give Jamie a lot of grace because I don't think she's ever been in a position to lead a team or run a business before. Not to mention this team is all volunteer with a lot of people who have their own opinions on what terms to use or how things should run. I think a lot of people made unrealistic demands of Jamie because everyone went straight to her because there was no hierarchy, which is a symptom of growing too quickly without building the infrastructure. So Jamie does have some defenders. But there have been various feuds aired on Twitter between former gag members and current gag members, and it's all pretty ugly and embarrassing. So you're saying gays against groomers run by a woman who, like, thinks 9-11 had something to do with the Illuminati has not been a well-functioning organization so far. That's your claim. Jesse, just because she had some 9-11 Illuminati photos in her Flickr doesn't mean she thinks the Illuminati did 9-11. She could think that the Jews did it. <laughs> Is that the same thing? Um, we are overrepresented in the Illuminati, but technically they're uh, Much like the media? Yeah, exactly. So there's also been some drama over politics, specifically because Jamie went from being a Trump supporter to being a DeSantis supporter. So, for instance, in July, a former gag co-chair named David Leatherwood announced he was leaving the organization. <laughs> Leatherwood? Yes. I just really like yeah. that name. He said, quote, today I would like to announce I am formally resigning from my board position with Gays Against Groomers and withdrawing my involvement from the organization. I will always support the mission of GAG and the great and impactful work they are doing to protect kids from indoctrination, medicalization, and sterilization. GAG is a great organization, and I have nothing bad to say about its group or its leaders and wish them continued to access. Then right below that tweet, Caitlyn Jenner weighs in. Not the draft you sent my team. Some <laughs> highly relevant omitted info. Hmm. You can't play it both ways. So he responds to her. He says, My departure from GAG is directly related to the founder's outspoken support for DeSantis in light of his recent ad that is extremely anti-gay. While I respect everyone's right to their own opinion, the homophobia coming from the DeSantis campaign is not something I, wanted, I want to be affiliated with in any way even by proxy through gag. That's it. That's the real reason. T-emoji. Wait, so what's the anti-gay ad? Okay, I'm going to show you this ad and ask you to narrate it. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. But Caitlyn Jenner were to walk into Trump Tower 
and want to use the bathroom, you would be fine with her using any bathroom she chooses. That is correct. In the future, can transgender women compete in Miss Universe? Yes. Make America great again. Oh, I've seen this. It's basically like, a you know, uh, all these images of like rainbow flags and LGBT stuff over Donald Trump saying he will support uh, gay rights. Basically. And then there's all these headlines about what what Ron DeSantis has done. Like one of the headlines is like Ron DeSantis signs most anti-trans legislation in history. So they're trying to paint uh, Donald Trump as soft on the LGBTs and uh, Ron DeSantis as a staunch opponent of the LGBTs. Exactly. And this video got a ton of traction with a lot of people saying, like, this is this is legitimately homophobic. And I'm sure Donald Trump being like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Actually, maybe people like, I love the gays. I love the gays. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, so this was retreated by the DeSantis war room. And the New York Times looked into it, and it turns out that the ad itself was actually made by the campaign and distributed to a supporter who posted it under his account. So it would appear as though it was like a fan video and not a campaign video. And So it's like an AstroTurf type of thing. Yeah. And this video proved to be too much even for some conservatives, so like David Leatherwood and Caitlyn Jenner. And so Jamie's support of Ron DeSantis has been a continual source of controversy within gag. So she's been a... Ex- Dude, the DeSantis campaign is amazing. That's not even the worst video they put out. No, there's awesome. no Nazi imagery in this one. Uh, yeah. So she's been accused of being on the DeSantis payroll. I searched his campaign expenditures. I didn't see Jamie or gag anywhere. That's not necessarily dispositive because she could have had a business name or something that I'm not aware of, but she denies getting any money from the campaign. Uh, when I asked why she changed her allegiance from Trump to DeSantis... She said, quote, I got off the Trump train during the COVID years when he subsidized his presidency to Fauci. I don't know what that means. And pushed the experimental job nonstop for over a year. I believe DeSantis is the better candidate in every regard. I'm tired of the baggage, the ego and the drama that comes with Trump. I also believe he's truly a con man at this point and cares more about himself than the country. I mean, hard to argue with that. With the vaccine thing, I agree. It's hard to argue with that. (laughs) So this has caused friction within the group. She's called Trumpers cultist. That didn't go over well. She's called Pete. She's accusing other people of being cultists. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. One former volunteer, a guy in New York who quit in April, he said that 99% of gag supporters are Trump supporters. So she's alienating the base. Jamie says this isn't true, that gag is growing, and that they just had their best month ever. I personally cannot see why anyone would support a group that seems to run on pure drama. If you're into that, just support this podcast. And my takeaway from this is basically that it's amateur hour and anything they've managed to accomplish has been just pure luck and accidentally tapping into the zeitgeist at the right time. But they do continue to get attention. Just last week, they had a fundraiser at a comedy club in Yorkville, New York. Protesters showed up. There was some kind of brawl. They made the news again. Nice. Good for them. Yep. Best of luck to them. Jesse, any questions? No. You covered this so thoroughly, and I feel so disgusted with humanity that uh, that's it. I got no questions. There's so much drama that I didn't get into because it's minute and not that interesting. But yes, they are they are the soap opera of gags. Carlin Borisenko Substack, if you want that. Yeah. Enjoy. This has been Blocked or Reported. We are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains and the Mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single, and remember... Bubba and Grandma's ciabatta, Kalamata olive and caper tapenade, tomb, pickled beets, marinated onions, Bulgarian cheap feta, eight-minute egg, dill pickle, seasonal greens and herbs, shoestring potatoes, limited daily, $15. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, sure, it might not be literally true that Jesse asked Anna and Dasha to carve stars of David into his back while burning a copy of the Talmud, but it is emotionally true, and that's what counts. <laughs> <laughs>